Well, thank you guys uh, for your worship this morning. Uh, I'm going to invite you to open up to the book of Philippians and uh, turn to chapter 4. Before we get going in there, let me just say, um, this has been one of the strangest weeks uh, for me pastorally, Um, and the reason is I've, I've... Monday, I uh, got back to the office, had been off. Uh, we'd been on vacation. I know the church had been shut down as well because of COVID and started working on a sermon that I thought I was going to preach. I typically plan out my stuff a year out. And so I can tell you 12 months where I'm going to be. Got to Monday, wrestled with a text till about Tuesday night and was just like, I don't have it. And so got back to the work to work on, on Wednesday, uh, changed gears, wrestled with a text till about Thursday uh, evening. I remember texting uh, my assistant, Karen, I was like, well, you just pray for me because I don't feel like I'm supposed to say what I need to say to our church on Sunday and then start it over again on Friday. And it's the first time in pastoral ministry that it, I've written three sermons in one week. All right. And so I am ready to go. I'm about to bust. All right. And so what I'm going to do this morning is uh, we're sort of just taking a break in between series. And the word that we're going to look at this morning is just really a word that if I can be honest with you, it's just what the Lord's been doing with me. And uh, this is like, this is the, the, the passage that I've continually be, been drawn to um, over the past month and a half. Uh, it's what I've been quoting to myself, saying to myself. And I was like, you know what? This is where I think the Lord would, would have us to, to be this morning. Um, historically, I'll just be honest with you. I am tired of living in unprecedented times. Amen. Uh, can we just all agree we're tired of seeing things we've never seen before ever within our lifetime? This is just one of those, those weeks. It's a strange week because on one sense, we've got the, uh, the calamity of COVID, that the numbers are higher than they've ever been, uh, more hospitalizations, more, more fear, anxiety, more pressure than has ever existed um, in the midst of the pandemic. And at the same time, we're in the middle of a political transition. And so we watched on Wednesday and Thursday, just sort of the wheels just sort of fall off. And I want to say to you as a pastor, in case you haven't heard it from a pastor yet, that we can unequivocally, we can condemn what took place this past week, and we should. We don't condemn uh, political protests. We're not in the condemnation business for for peacefully protesting. We are 100% for those things and advocating for policies and, and positions and people 100%. But anytime those protests enter into either congressional buildings and or private property, we can, as Christians, just circle back around and say, hey, this is wrong, this is, this is not right, and we should condemn it in every which way. It was wrong. And so the question is, moving forward, what are we supposed to do for those of you that may have grievances today and conflict today? What's the posture supposed to be? Because we saw a lot of Christians, even this past week, or who claim to be Christians, display a, a posture of, of their perceived Christ in a very unchristlike way with some of the things that they did. And we watched it and we saw it with our own two eyes. And so what do we do about that? Well, I think the answer is found in Scripture because we find ourselves in this place in Philippians chapter 4 where these two ladies at the beginning of the chapter are at odds with one another. There's conflict within the church. And it exists in the church in Philippi with these two women who were godly people who loved Jesus. 
But for whatever reason, they were having some struggles. And the best that we can tell was there was a degree, according to chapter two in Philippians, that there was probably some jealousy that was occurring in the midst of their relationship. So one of them was a little bit, uh, hey, why am I not being used or shown respect in this way? Or why am I not being heard? And so this animosity began to brew up. And so Paul needs to address the church to wrestle with the conflict between two women. Now, it could have just as easily been two men, but in this moment, we have these two ladies who are at odds with each other. And so Paul begins to write, and I want to pick up in verse four of chapter four, and I want you to notice the word that Paul uses to address the two women in conflict. And we're going to take this and we'll apply this on a broader scale. But Paul says this, in the midst of this conflict, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, one of the things that we know at this point in Paul's life is that when Paul writes those words, when he says to rejoice, no matter the circumstance, he writes them as he sits in a prison jail cell, not knowing whether or not he's going to be put to death, not knowing whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die. And yet in the midst of that, not knowing if he's going to get beaten or stoned or, or crucified or, or beheaded, here he is just sitting in the cell and he's speaking to the church in the midst of conflict and his admonition is as crazy as it sounds. Hey, you know what? I'm in the jail cell. I'm dirty. I'm cold. I'm hungry. But guess what, church? You are called to rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. Harsh words to a difficult context in which they find themselves in. But one of the things in which I I love about the book of Philippians is that whether you're in chapter two or chapter three, you see this theme in the midst of difficulties that's always telling the church and the people of God to rejoice despite the circumstance, to rejoice despite the suffering, to rejoice despite the persecution. Rejoice, again I say always rejoice. There is no circumstance in which you live in that we should not be in a posture of rejoicing. But the text goes on and he says this. He says, to let your reasonableness be known to everyone for the Lord is at hand. Now, some translations take that Greek word reasonableness that we read in the English and they'll translate it a couple other ways. And I think it's helpful for us to understand the tone and the emotive feel that Paul's trying to get across to the church. Some translations will say, let your softness be known. Let your, um, let your meekness or your moderation be seen before the world or let your gentleness be known. So in hard circumstances, church, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice so that your reasonableness or what I prefer there is the gentleness can be known to everyone. And one of the reasons why I like that word gentle there in that context is because in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, we see Jesus talking and Matthew writing and Jesus says, for I am gentle and I am lowly of heart. There was a kindness and a gentleness that existed within Jesus' posture as he approached hot-button political issues and theological issues. He would let his reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. 
And the reason why I think Paul puts that last little phrase there, the Lord is at hand, is to remind us of two things. One, the fact that one day, guess what? We believe that Jesus is going to return again. And when he comes back, he's not dealing with our sin anymore, according to Revelation 19 and 20. In fact, when he comes back, he's going to deal with us with a harshness of, of judgment. He's going to make every wrong right in the world. And at that point, at his return, there are no second chances, according to Scripture. But Jesus comes firstly to deal with our sin, to deal with our hearts, to deal with our our actions. And he says, the Lord is at hand to say, listen, he is going to return. At the same time, what I think he's reminding them too is that the Lord is in the middle of your circumstance. The Lord is in the midst. One of the reasons why I love Advent season is because it's this theme of Emmanuel, God with us. And too often we we get done with Christmas, we box up the tree, put up all the garland, put up all the lights, and we forget that the promise of Christmas is still true today. God is with us. He is with his people. He has not left us or forsaken us. Regardless of who the president is or the president-elect or who the next one will be or what happens at the next cycle, it doesn't matter. Despite all those things, God will still be with his people. He never leaves us. And so it never leaves us in this posture of of despair. He never leaves us in this place of, of hopelessness. But here's one of the first things that I want you to see by way of application in the text. That the most immediate outward expression of a rejoicing heart is a Christ-like gentleness towards other people. How do you know if you're a Christian who is walking in a posture of always rejoicing? You will be gentle with people. You will be kind in how you address, even in in disagreements. You know, one of the missing ingredients in the last two or three years has been civility, has been moderation and and tone and and how we say things, not just what we're saying, but, but how we're saying this to portray the gentleness of Christ. Because my brothers and sisters, if we have forgotten, let us be reminded of this this morning. That Jesus did not come just to save one political party, but all parties, all people, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. That he's worthy of the affection of libertarians and Republicans and Democrats. He is worthy of all of those things. And our mission is not one that's political, my friend. We are missing that. Our mission is one, to see people far from God come to know Christ. Does that mean we don't advocate for policies that line up with scripture? Of course we do. Does it mean that, that, that we should not advocate for, for men and women that, that believe that this is the word of God and that want to pass laws and legislation according to this? Of course we want that, 100%. But at the end of the day, that's not our mission. Our mission is to see lost people come to know the goodness and to see that Jesus is worthy of our affections and our hearts and our time and our attention. That's our mission. And so we know that we are a people that is rejoicing when we begin to display the gentleness towards all people. But then notice what he says. He says, listen, friends, um, do not be anxious about anything. But by everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let your request be made known to God. Now I want to focus in on that first part just for a little bit. 
Over the break, I read several books on just pastoral counseling and, and, and many of them focused on things like anxiety and, and depression. And as I was reading those things, I was like, man, um, as I'm reading this, I'm sort of self-validating my own feelings going, I think I may be like a, a really anxious. Like, I think I'm kind of a depressed person, you know, that came to this point where I was like, I got to put that away and like focus on something else in, in the midst of this. But one of the reasons why I started doing that is because one of the chief issues that's facing the church in 2021 and in the years to come is the anxiety levels and the depression levels are through the roof in the church. That the church is not immune to these kinds of things. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, anxieties are reaching such an epic proportion that it is the number one mental health problem with women and it's the number two mental health problem with men, second only to alcohol and drug abuse. So anxiety is an issue that plagues every single person for the most part. What is anxiety? Oftentimes we get anxiety and, and fear mixed up, even though they're closely related. Anxiety is an emotion that we can all, all, all feel. And, and at times we can become controlled by our anxiety when we dwell on it too much. But as one author said this, he said, listen, um, he said, anxiety and fear, they're cousins, but they're not twins. Fear is what sees a threat. Anxiety is what imagines a threat. So to illustrate it this way, I'll, I'll pick on my oldest son. He's watching this at home and I didn't ask permission to share this, but I'm gonna share it with him at risk of embarrassing him, but he's not here to be seen. So he doesn't, it doesn't count. Years ago, um, my, my wife and I decided that we wanted to get into the chicken business. All the cool hipsters and all like the young uh, up and comers were like, they started raising chickens and we're like, we can do this. Like I'll build a chicken coop, knew nothing about chickens. Built a chicken coop, uh, put my eight or nine chickens in there. Like within like two weeks, they were all dead. Okay, let's start over. Let's go get eight or nine more and let's figure out what happened. We had coyotes and raccoons and, and all kinds of things. Well, pretty soon I figured it out. And pretty soon we were able to raise chickens to be old enough where they were laying eggs. And so what you do when, when you've got five kids is you send your oldest out there, hey, go check the coop and see if there's any eggs. And so Connor was about 10 or 11 years old and he was about the height uh, of the door that you open. And so he goes out there, he comes back in, he has no eggs, but his, but his face is as wide as it can be like a ghost. So what's the matter? He said, there's a snake in there and he stuck his tongue out me, at me and he almost licked me. <laughs> and so I did what any good dad would do. I'm the protector of my house and any reason that I get to shoot a gun, I loaded the shotgun, loaded the shell, let's go get some, Okay. Walked out there thinking there was no snake in there, opened it up. Sure enough, that snake was right there and he almost kissed me on the face too. So I did what any brave dad would do. I stepped back six feet and I just blew the snake's head off. It was awesome. And then we held the snake up, we bragged about it and did all these things. But don't you believe that after that event, I could never get my son to go back to the chicken coop to get the eggs, why? Because the anxiety levels welled up in him about the potential what ifs. Even though I had managed the fear and even though there were ways to open the door up, the anxiety level of him went through the roof and he's like, I'm not doing eggs anymore. No, thank you. And so I became the egg keeper, which eventually meant if I was the one taking care of him the whole time, we were going to get rid of those chickens the first chance that we got. And we did. But fear dwells with this, what I see. Anxiety is the, the imaginary thing. It's the what if that exists within our minds as we're wrestling through what we see and, and what begins to happen. 
And one of the things about anxiety that we see from Scripture and elsewhere is that your anxiety will increase as your perceived control of a situation begins to diminish. So the more you feel out of control in a situation, the more your anxiety is going to sort of well up a little bit more. And this lack of control that you have in the situation or with the person is going to rise up. And so this is why Paul is writing to the church and he's saying, listen, don't be anxious about things that you can't control. Church, don't even be anxious about conflict between two ladies or two men in the midst of the church that you can't control. Church, don't be anxious about political situations that you have nothing to do with, nor can you control. To be anxious for for nothing. Don't be anxious about anything, but your anxiety will increase as you become aware of, of what you can't control, but it will increase when you begin to move that attention and that focus elsewhere. One child psychologist said this about today's students. Listen to this, this blew my mind. He said the average child and student today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Think about this. However they, those doctors measure anxiety, the level to which teenagers and children experience that today is the equivalent of if you were a child in the 1950s, we would have admitted you into a psychiatric ward. That's the load that that we're carrying and and it's even magnified and it's intensified on adults. But notice the response when he says, do not be anxious about anything, but rather the response is with prayer and with supplication. So the response of the believer is not to respond the way we've watched the world and even worldly Christians respond to uncertain times and difficulties. The response of the Christian rather is is not to, to echo all of the chaos that exists within the world, but when we see a problem before us, we don't wring our hands and walk away from it, but rather we bend our knees and we fall on our faces. Because too often our response to tough situations is the last thing that we resort to is prayer. And rather the first line of offense that we have is to to get on our knees and and to cry out before a a living God who, who is alive and reigns today that we can talk with and commune with. And he responds to us and he interacts with us and he speaks to us. And so we bend our knees with prayer and with supplication. And then notice what the promise is when the believer does this. He says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is one of those passages where he gives like these four commands that lead to this promise where the result of doing these four things leads to the promise, which is the peace of God. We see he says first to rejoice, then then to be gentle, let your reasonableness be be known, to, to not worry and then to go before the Father and then you will have peace. Our problem comes when we try to achieve peace by just doing one of these four things. 
And oftentimes we're praying and we're like, I'm praying, but I'm still anxious. I'm still worrying. Well, well, it's because maybe you're not being reasonable about it and, and, and honest about the situation or you're not focusing on the right things and, and rejoicing and finding the things that we can say, Lord, thank you for, for doing those things over the past year or, or over the past 30 years of my life and, and rejoicing in the goodness that we see before us and the testimony that we have behind us. And so it's rather as I rejoice and, and as I am reasonable and gentle and, and as I don't worry and, and as I pray, then and only then do I get the peace of God. My friends, our, our world desperately needs peace, does it not? If we can't see that today, I doubt we will ever see it. If we don't see today that the world doesn't need a man-made peace, not a Drew peace, not a Nathan peace or a Matt peace, not a Dan peace, but it needs a, a, a peace that comes only from God. Not another religion, not a, you don't need a tip on how to live your life. You just need the peace of God in your life on display to a world that's watching and you will see those far from God come to know him because of the testimony that you display. I think one of the reckonings that God's gonna do on the church this year is he gonna, he's gonna remind us that, that our, our allegiance is not to this kingdom on this earth, but it is in the kingdom to come. And as much as we want and labor and desire to see the goodness of God this side of eternity. Friends, this world is not your home and it's not mine. And I've not been called to live for the systems and the governments and the ideas of this world alone. That I live rather for the next one with eternity in mind. And so every labor that I do, every thought that I think, every word that I communicate must be done with those things in mind. Because then Paul, he, he keeps going and he says, listen, you want to know what this rejoicing can be and, and how to be gentle and lowly and, and how not to worry and what you should be praying about? Here's the answer uh, for God's will for your life right here. He continues on in verse nine and he says, finally, brothers, still addressing the conflict that exists, the turmoil, the, the opposite ends of, of thinking and feeling. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, what is true, those things that are, that are rooted in, in the character and the nature of God. God is true. His word is true. Jesus is truth. We dwell on those things not the latest uh, political agenda or the idea or, or conspiracy or whatever it might be. We've been called to dwell in, in truth and it, all we can know and believe is that this is true. Maybe nobody else is, but we'll believe this is. And so whatever is true and, and honorable, things that, that signify uh, moral excellence, worthy of, of something and, and esteem, whatever is just, uh, living right, doing the right thing at, at all times. No matter who's watching, a, a person that lives justly, uh, it brings other people up with them. As they rise, they bring other people along for the ride. And the goal is to bring as many along as they, as they possibly can. To speak up when we see injustice. That's one definition of, of living justly. He says, whatever is pure, 
Not just sexually pure, but morally pure in thought and and speech and actions, whatever is, is lovely. I love this one for this morning because when he uses this word lovely, he's talking about two things. He's talking about seeing and choosing to see the loveliness that exists in people because a lovely God created, yes, we were born into sin and, and, and we're reconciled with him through Christ, but, but choosing to see the best in people and the potential and, and who they are and what they can be. And when we see their compassion and their, their mercy and those things on display, we go, it's a lovely thing, but, but we can also look out to creation. And we can watch just simple things, like in Texas, it blows our minds and it freaks us out, snow coming to the ground. And we go, how, how lovely. The same way we look at a sunset or, or an ocean or, or a mountain range. It's lovely because God created it. And I get to enjoy his creation because it's, it's good. Because he made it. Whatever is commendable. This is conduct of other people. When you see people conduct themselves in, in just true right ways and you go, look, look at what you're doing. It's awesome. I'm so proud of you. What you're accomplishing and the things that you're doing. And, and it's about telling people those things. I'm so proud of you. I think one of the things that every man and, and woman, but I think men grow up more often than not, not hearing this. I think women hear it, but I think it's, it's weird to say sometimes to another grown man, hey, I'm proud of you. Like, I'm proud of, of who you are and what you're becoming and, and what you've accomplished. Yeah, you've had obstacles and you've not been perfect, but I want you to know I'm proud of you and who you're trying to be. Every man needs to, to hear that in, in his life, to be commended of those things. He goes on and he says, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, to think about these things. For when you learned and received and heard and, and seen me in, practice, in practicing these things, therefore the God of peace will be with you. So here's what Paul does, tying into this word commendable, looking at the conduct. Paul's like, look, you've seen in me a consistent person live these things out. I I acted this way and sought to live justly and rightly and you saw me practice these things. Didn't mean he executed them perfectly every time. But when you do that, then again, what's the promise at the end? You will receive the peace of God. So here's how I want to end today is with this idea. It's one thing to talk about truth. It's one thing to talk about honor and justice and purity and and how lovely God is and people can be and, and rightness. It's one thing to talk about those things, to study them, to examine them, to look at them in the Greek and the, the Hebrew, to have a Bible study about them. That, that's all one thing. But you have not learned truth and honor and justice and purity and loveliness and rightness until you've lived them. Until we can get to this place like, like Paul where we can say, I'm, I'm, I'm practicing these things with everything in me. And I'm gonna give my life to this end that, that I would be commended for, for these right things, not how the world would define it. As one poet said it this way, noble thoughts are of little value unless they are translated into noble deeds. I love that. Thoughts are one thing. But unless they get translated into actions and and taking those things upon ourselves as Christ works in us, then those things are nothing. Friend, I want to tell you that um, the world needs 
more commendable people according to the Bible, this text. I shared with you guys not too long ago that in John 3, we all know John 3, 16, but we tend to forget the couple of verses before that where it says God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned. It doesn't mean I don't speak out against injustices. But the gospel of Jesus says and declares that we are, we're heralds to proclaim the good news, the goodness of God. Yes, we preach on sin. Yes, we preach on turning from sin and repenting from sin 100%. We don't leave that behind. But at the same time, we have to lean into the fact that the gospel is the good news of Jesus. And listen to me, friend, it never leaves people in shame and condemnation. You may leave someone in shame and condemnation. They may leave themselves in shame and condemnation. But friend, the gospel of Jesus never leaves someone in condemnation and sin. It redeems them. When received by faith and trust, it changes them. And it's the person who feels shamed and condemned this morning is the person that God is saying, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. God wants those of you this morning who feel that shame. God wants those of you this morning who don't feel at peace with your maker. And he wants you to be at peace today. I want you to be at peace today. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we, um, we thank you that in your goodness, you tell us that we there's a response to our anxiety. There's an answer to our fear. Those answers have been given in the form of a person, your son, Jesus, who adequately has handled our our fear, adequately handled our our shame and, and our condemnation, our despair, and has picked up us up out of that grave and turned it into something lovely. And so, Father, we, we want to be a people that worship out of that loveliness, out of what's commendable and, and just. So, Father, we ask that you would just inhabit our praises to not hold back from us during this time. We pray, Father, your spirit would move in a way that would change people this morning. If you're here today in this room or at home watching online, the message of the gospel is this. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, Christ has made alive. And that you can have forgiveness through him. The Bible teaches to repent and believe. That's the gospel message. Nothing more, nothing less. Repent and believe. This morning, would you repent of your sin? Would you believe in the name of our Lord Jesus? The church, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with peace, God offers you peace, brother and sister. Peace not in a formula, not in steps, but in a person. 
God gives us the greatest gift. He gives us the gift of himself. And we get to know him and walk with him. And he walks with us. Church, I, uh, I want you to hear this. God loves you guys. He loves this church. He loves this city. He loves our country. He, he loves our world. And, and he's, he sees the, the utter total depravity that exists. He sees the wickedness. He knows it. This morning, my wife sent me a text and she just said, hey, I'm praying Psalm 9 over you this morning as you get ready to preach. And I want to read it over us as we continue in song. I want to pray it over us rather because I think it's appropriate. of the Lord says this I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart we God today will give thanks to you and we will recount all of your wonderful deeds Lord this morning your church will be glad and we will exult in you we will sing praises to your name for you are the most high God you have maintained our, our just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You've rebuked the nations and you have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever and ever. You sit enthroned forever. You have established your throne of justice forever. You judge the world with righteousness. You judge your people with uprightness. And you, God, you alone are a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Father, would you be our stronghold this morning, we pray. Amen.